Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. So before we start the episode properly, how's life going on the other end of this podcast? It's pretty good. I have been walking around in a haze all day because last night I finished reading Ease Violent Delights by Micah Nemerever, which is a kind of historical thriller in the vein of The Secret History and Hitchcock about two boys at college in the 1970s who kind of find themselves drawn up in this tangle of obsession and love and murder and I read it under 24 hours because it's one of those books you really just can't look away from. It's like a car crash. It sucks you in. It was quite intense. And I've just been like walking around all day thinking about chess and like morality and ethics. And yeah, it's it's been a time. But other than that, I promise I'm good. I just happened to read books about bad people that absorbed my brain for several days afterwards. Um, how's stuff going on your end of things where I assume you are not reading about murderers and chess games? I'm not. In fact, I've been doing basically the exact opposite. I've been rereading In Other Lands by Sarah Reese Brennan, which is one of my very favorite books. It's kind of the book equivalent of comfort food for me. It's about a grouchy British schoolboy that gets transported to another world and finds out that magic school isn't all it's cracked up to be. And it's very emotional, but also really funny and has amazing um, friendships and romance, as well as mermaids and elves and harpies and anything else your heart desires. Oh, I love that book. I was reading it back when it was published free in a serialized form on Sarah Reese Brennan's website in another form. We go way back. Love that book. It kind of is like comfort food. Like, it's just a good book. Uh, Kind of polar opposite of what I've been reading, though. You're right. On a similar topic, we're going to be discussing another book that we both read for the first time in middle school as well. Today, we're talking about Shadow and Bone, a young adult fantasy novel by Lee Bardugo, first published in 2012 and the first book in the Grisha trilogy. It's a novel that we both read for the first time years ago and are revisiting in anticipation of the upcoming Netflix adaptation, which hasn't yet dropped at the time we're recording this, although we're both greatly anticipating it. So to give you a brief summary, Shadow and Bone is set in a Russian-inspired fantasy kingdom called Ravka, which is divided in two by a magical darkness um, called the Shadowfold, created generations ago by a magical heretic known as the Darkling. And inside this fold live creepy monsters called the Valkra that eat anyone that tries to pass through the fold. It's basically a bad time. Ravka's not doing so great. They're a war-torn country with strong divides between the lower and upper classes as well as that. Um, So basically the Shadowfold Not great news for Ravka. However, they have people who are gifted with magic known as the Grisha. The Grisha are both respected and feared by the people of Ravka. And this novel follows Alina Starkov, a war orphan turned army cartographer who discovers while crossing the Shadowfold for the first time with her regiment that she has the previously undiscovered and nearly unheard of magical ability to summon light. She is dubbed the Sun Summoner and is whisked away for training in the capital, as it's believed that she could help destroy the Shadowfold with proper training. Taken under the wing of the charismatic leader of the Grisha, the most recent in the line of Darklings, Alina must grapple with her newly discovered powers, sudden place in the spotlight, and the twisty politics of Ravka that even she might not yet fully understand. I think we got into the Grisha trilogy back while it was still being released, in between the publication of Siege and Storm, the second book, and the series conclusion, Rune and Rising. I was probably about 12 or 13. I was like pretty into that series because I've always been a big reader and I was especially into fantasy books around that age. Yeah, this was quite a while ago. This was in the days before Lee Bardugo's more popular and honestly better companion series, Six of Crows, which is set in the same universe. Although at the time, the Grisha trilogy was still pretty popular, which is where I heard about it in the first time. This series kind of blew my mind as a 12-year-old because it had stuff like excellent banter, cool world building that felt unique because it wasn't just medieval England with the place names changed. It was a fantasy novel with evolving technology, which is something that I had barely read about before. And yes, the fact that the villain was hot did in fact blow my middle school mind. (laughs) You'll probably be hearing more about that later on in this episode. Oh, definitely. Um, I think I was primarily into the series because I thought the magic system was cool. It's a big part of what happens in the series. And I also thought it was kind of exploring like power and corruption and the chosen one archetype and villainy. 
in ways that stood out from other young adult fantasy books I was reading at the time. So now we're both rereading it for the first time in years in preparation for Shadow and Bone. And having grown up, I recognize that this series isn't perfect, but it still does have a kind of special place in my heart. So it was pretty fun to get to revisit a book that was so important to me when I was younger. I think this series does definitely have flaws, which we will be covering in this episode. Um, and I think I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much if I read it when I was older and had like kind of more discerning taste and more background in fantasy novels and young adult literature. But like I read it at kind of like the prime age. So I did really enjoy it back then. And I still have some amount of fondness for it. Even like if I can look back on it and acknowledge there are ways it isn't a perfect book. I did have fun reading it. I'm curious to see how it'll translate to the screen as a Netflix show. It was definitely an interesting experience rereading this. I don't think I have read this book since right before the publication of the final book in the Grisha trilogy. So it has been a minute since I read this series, even though I've been keeping up with Bart Hugo's other works. So it was definitely an unusual experience to revisit a book like this. Um, also knowing that what I'm reading is about to play out on a big Netflix screen was interesting. I would say like not a, not a perfect book upon reread, but I think there's definitely some interesting stuff to discuss and we'll kind of get into that. Um, general flaws, um, characterization, magic system, we'll kind of, I'll cover that. Um, I, like I said, I kind of, I did find it flawed, but like overall readable. I read through it pretty quickly. The pacing is a little weird on reread. I think the first half is a lot slower than the second. There's like a fair amount of training montage and kind of magic school stuff. Bardugo's writing, I think is, is pretty solid. It holds up more than other books I have reread from the era that I read Shadow and Bone. There is kind of a typical chosen one magic school plotline, but there's like some interesting twists on it later on in the series. It's pretty standard in this book. I, I hope that the show is good. I probably will reread the other books refresh my memory if I enjoy the Netflix adaptation. Yeah, I definitely agree that this book isn't perfect. And upon reread, having grown up a bit and read more books in the fantasy genre and becoming a more discerning reader who understands more about the tools and tropes of the fantasy genre, I can definitely recognize that it has elements like the chosen one, the mean hot girl, the magic school um, that are kind of a bit cliche at these times, but I still really enjoyed it the first time I read it as a kid, and I think it's still a fairly solid book. The plot is also rather typical, but I think Lee Bardugo's writing somewhat eleva elevates the novel. It has kind of fun lines, like I've always enjoyed the phrase, what is infinite, the universe and the greed of men. I always felt like that was a fun line. I don't think I would love this book as much as if I read it for the first time now, but because it had such a big impact on me as a kid, I can't be like totally objective about it. Although I can recognize that I think Lee Bardugo has grown a lot as a writer since publishing this book. The difference between Shadow and Bone and Six of Crows is astounding. The characters and plot are much more complex in that series, although this isn't like bad. I would say that it's definitely not like up to par compared to like her later work. Yeah, definitely. And I remember thinking that even when I read Six of Crows for the first time, because you can definitely see her characterization and her plots becoming more unique. So it's definitely kind of interesting to watch an author evolve over the years. The downside being that when you go back and reread their earlier work, like we did with Shadow and Bone, it definitely doesn't hold up now that you've seen them kind of go to new levels. You did mention characters, so I'll kind of maybe start there. Um, Alina isn't like a wildly interesting character in this book, but I think her narrative voice is pretty okay. It's readable, which I think is like not necessarily true for every young adult book that was published around then. Some of them, I did not end up enjoying the narrative voice upon reread. I agree. Alina is not the most unique character, but she does have some good sarcastic one-liners and I enjoy her sense of humor. And although that she finds herself in a very confusing and overwhelming situation, she doesn't allow everyone else to completely walk all over her, which I appreciate. She spends a lot of the novel being guided around by other people, but she doesn't feel completely passive because she has her own opinions on what's happening. I think that's true. I remember finding that her struggle with power later on in the series got pretty interesting and what it means to be held up as this kind of chosen one saint-like figure, but that's not really present as much in this book, though it's kind of hinted at. I think her main story in this is just kind of like accepting that she has this magical ability and honing it and kind of being rocketed up from a poor war orphan who works in the army to potentially one of the most important people in Ravka. So it is sort of like 
kind of a typical like your everyday girl realizes that she's a special magical chosen one plot but I remember thinking that it got more complicated and interesting as she sort of has to walk these lines of like power later on in the series but it's not like hugely hinted at a ton mm-hmm. in this book, which is for the most part like kind of standard I guess because most of this book is training and Alina is not as directly involved in politics that's definitely true there is one scene that I enjoy where she's talking to a priest and he mentions that people have started worshiping her as a saint and asking for salvation from the shadow fold and I thought that was kind of fun when I was reading it for the first time and I really enjoyed that it gets expanded a little bit more on in the sequels about how Alina is like venerated and put on a pedestal by these people that can believe that she can save them but she's also a flawed human being with her own struggles with her self-esteem and greed and power and things like that. I think the way that there's kind of a subplot about Alina learning to embrace her power is done in an interesting way because she's been subconsciously repressing her abilities as the Sun Summoner for most of her life as a child because the way it works in Ravka is that everyone is tested for Grisha abilities at a young age when they start to emerge and the students who test positive for these powers and display magical abilities are whisked away to the capital to be trained alongside their fellow Grisha. And Alina as a war orphan, that could have been astounding for her and it would have taken her from a life of poverty and abandonment to a life of luxury and importance, but she as a child didn't want to be parted from her childhood friend Mal, a fellow war orphan that she kind of clung to after both of their families died and began like intentionally repressing her power because she didn't want to be separated from him in a way that not only meant she couldn't display her magical abilities but also has had this kind of physical impact on her where she's tired all the time and has like dark circles under her eyes so some of some of the part of shadow and bone that i found interesting kind of unique is the way that she has to stop basically downplaying herself because of a guy and learn to embrace her true power which i kind of liked i think it's sort of interesting story because there are elements of like how her magic interacts with her emotional state, which I always think is cool and I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I dislike the most in Chosen One narratives is when the character gains some kind of new magical power and is instantly amazing at it and has mastered this ability with basically no practice. So although the training montage sections of this book did feel a little bit slow, I appreciated that Alina has to really work for becoming the Sun Summoner. She has to overcome her mental block about wanting to repress her power so she can stay with Mal. And then even after that's gone, she has to train because the Grisha don't innately know how to use their abilities to the best of their power. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, It was a little bit difficult for me to like, to like Mal in the first half of the book because he doesn't have a lot of page time with Alina. So it was rather satisfying for me when she finally realized that she needs to like become more independent from him and that her desire to like stay the same girl that's always been friends with him and kind of his second fiddle sometimes is what's causing her mental block on her powers. So that's always been a rather satisfying scene for me just because Alina is able to realize her own self-worth more. Mm, Yeah, I think that's true. I agree with that, definitely. One thing I didn't love about this is that there definitely is kind of this judgment of other girls, especially like a pretty popular one that you definitely see in young adult literature from like around that time, I feel like, because Alina is um, the Sun Summoner, so she's popular, but that means there are still people that don't like her. And in particular, there's this character called Zoya, who's another powerful Grisha, who's kind of this like pretty mean girl figure that felt like pretty stalked to me. And I found that like a little annoying upon reread. I was like, this feels like one of the aspects of young adult books that I don't love. Yeah, Zoya does get more development in the later Grisha books and even gets her own perspective in later ones. But in this one, she's kind of a cardboard cutout of like a pretty girl that doesn't like Alina because she threatens her place in the hierarchy of powerful Grisha. So I found that kind of annoying. I did appreciate that Alina has one pretty strong friendship with another girl, though. She's very close with Jenya, who's another Grisha, and also Alina's servant. And I appreciated their friendship a lot because Jenya is the exception to the Alina being judgy about really pretty other girls because Alina has some self-esteem issues about her own looks, but she ends up becoming pretty close with Jenya in this book. And I really like Jenya as a character because she's 
very fashion and appearance oriented, but she's also like quite clever and intelligent and has like some fun hints of romance with another character. So she's just like, I'm a Genya stan. I appreciate that Alina is friends with her. Yes, I love Genya. I think she's actually one of my favorite parts of this book. She is a character who has the ability to like manipulate bodies and matter. And she's been trained as kind of um, basically a magical makeup artist for the queen, but she also has this like very precarious part in place in the court where she has to kind of hold favor and follow the beck and whim of these like very rich, terrible nobles. Um, I love, I love Jenya. Um, some bad things happened to her later in the series that I'm not excited about reading about, but I really liked her friendship with Alina. And I think she's a super interesting character because I love characters that have to use like their wits to navigate political situations. And he definitely fits into that. So in this house, we love and appreciate Jenya Safin. We do. Also, one thing I didn't love about this book upon reread is that there is definitely like a lot less diversity of character in than in this book than in like N. Barduga's other series. Uh, for instance, there's a white default for all the characters, which is like kind of standard for young adult books from that era, but like still not great because you basically assume that everyone in this fantasy world is white. I think the only character who's described as being a person of color is Botkin, who's the combat instructor. And I think he's supposed to be kind of an analog to Chinese in this fantasy world. Russia isn't like all white in real life. And historically, neither is like Europe in general, which is not particularly reflected in the series. It's just like those people in this book are just assumed to be like white and straight, which kind of boring. I'm glad things are changing in the adult fantasy genre in terms of that now, but definitely not true back then. Also, just personally, I didn't find Mal like that compelling as a love interest, even though his relationship with Alina is pretty important to her emotional development, like also the plot of the book. There is sort of this mystery that's teased about his past and the fact that he might have magical abilities. He's an uncannily good tracker and Alina suspects that this might just not be um, kind of a natural skill, but a magical thing, but I still didn't find him like crazy interesting. So, you know, flaws in books that we reread, we notice them. <laughs> Definitely agreed on both of those points. I noticed the lack of diversity in this book a lot more than I did the first time around because I was 12 and that kind of thing didn't register to me as much, but it is definitely a very white book. There are some characters who aren't white who are introduced in the sequels, but in this one, I think Botkin is the only character that's explicitly described as not white. There also aren't like any gay, bi, lesbian, trans characters or any of that kind of thing, which is too bad because, you know, those, those are good to read about as well. Uh, but as for Mal, I think that his relationship with Alina could be compelling to me because I am a fan of characters that grew up together as close friends and then developed feelings for each other. But Mal does kind of come off as like a bit of a careless teenager. Uh, and he kind of takes Alina for granted a lot. And she is like in love with him. He doesn't really see this and doesn't realize that like him flirting with other girls a lot kind of hurts her. So although like he develops a bit of the character and becomes less oblivious, I didn't love him just because he's sometimes not amazingly nice to Alina and I would appreciate it if he like cared about her feelings a little bit more. However, he's not a terrible person. He's a teenage guy, teenage guys are oblivious. And you know, he gets a bit better and understands that he really does care about Alina and doesn't want to lose her friendship or love. Mm, I, I mostly agree with you on that. I remember Mao going through some development in the later books I remember I think what I really ended up enjoying about this series is what happens in Siege and Storm and Ruin and Rising in terms of character and some interesting world building that's when I really went from like intrigued to like invested in the series and being super excited for the final book I really enjoyed the sequel so I am curious to reread Siege and Storm especially in regards to see if stuff that I didn't find as compelling in the first book is kind of amped up and becomes more interesting in the second book I think if the Netflix show is good. I definitely will continue on rereading this series, so I'm curious to see if the second book will hold up, but I do sort of agree with you about Mal. He's really not, like, as bad as some other characters we will talk about, but he's just, like, he's not crazy compelling to me. There are many male love interests in young adult fiction that I do not find super interesting, so that's not, like, a surprise. Yeah, if we're talking about characters who are not necessarily great people, then I guess we should probably talk about the Darkling. Uh, so the Darkling is introduced in Shadow and Bone, 
as being a general for Ravka. And he's a very old, very powerful Grisha. I think he claims to be about a hundred, although by the end of the book, we know this is like totally untrue. He's actually much older than that. And he claims to be a good guy who wants to use Alina's abilities to destroy the Shadowfold once and for all. And he says that his ancestor, who is called the Black Heretic, was the one that created the Shadowfold and he wants nothing more than to get rid of it. But the big twist of the novel um, is that the Darkling actually is the Black Heretic. He is several hundred years older than he claims to be and has been faking his death um, every couple of decades in order to pretend to be his own descendants. And he isn't actually interested in destroying the Shadowfold. He wants to expand it and use it to like threaten countries that threaten Ravka and create a place of safety and power for Grisha because they're currently being threatened by technological innovations in Ravka that are threatening to make them obsolete. And so the Darkling is a character that comes off at first like an extreme guy, but who's trying to do the right thing. And by the end of this book, you realize, oh no, he's actually the full-blown villain of this entire series, which is a character journey, sure is. He's an interesting character, in my opinion. From that uh, kind of fun twist on the traditional young adult novel love triangle where the girl is torn between her childhood friend and a new guy because then it turns out the new guy is in fact the main villain, which is kind of a fun twist. You definitely are introduced to the Darkling as this well-meaning and charismatic, powerful character, but like his name is the Darkling, so I was pretty suspect of him from the beginning. I was ashamed to admit that I was not. I assumed that there was something else going on with him, but that he had some kind of agenda. But I was just as shocked as Alina when it was revealed that he was intending to basically make her into like a slave and use her abilities to rule the world. I assumed he just was like an extreme guy who was willing to do what it took to keep people safe. But then after that, no, he didn't want to keep anyone safe. And I will say that I probably would have recognized his villainy much earlier if I had read this when I was a little bit older and a little bit wiser to tropes and cliches about characters. But as it was, I was just as charmed by him as Alina was and therefore was just as shocked when he turned out to be the bad guy. I think he's he's pretty transparently a bad guy upon reread just because he's a pretty shady dude. One of the first things we see him do is use his magic to kill someone in a very gross, violent way. And that kind of follows through his character for the rest of the series. But like, Alina is definitely drawn to him because of his power, because he's attractive, because he's charismatic, because he treats her like she's special when no one else has ever before. And I think it's quite believable that she would find herself under his spell up until the moment when she realizes his true character. So like, yes, I was suspicious of the Darkling from the start when I first met him, but I think it's understandable why Alina would maybe not be. Yeah, rereading this book, knowing who the Darkling really is, is a lot of fun because you can see all the places where he's very deliberately manipulating Alina, such as there's a subplot throughout the first half of the book where she keeps writing letters to Mal and he never responds and she eventually decides that he doesn't care about her. And upon reread, you can immediately tell that like, oh, of course, the Darkling is probably intercepting all of Mal's mail and like burning it in his study while cackling evilly or something. But that's not something you might necessarily think of the first time you're reading the book. And there are also scenes where he appears to allow himself to be genuinely vulnerable with Alina, such as talking about how he really wants to right the wrong done by his ancestor in creating the Shadowfold, or where he apparently finds himself impulsively kissing her. But you can see later on, after his true villainy is revealed, that all of these moments were actually very carefully crafted to make her even more drawn to him, to make sure she had no one to rely on except him, to make her believe that he genuinely cared about her as a person and not just her power. Which I think he does to an extent. He is attracted to her as a person and not just as the Sun Summoner, but that doesn't mean that he's not above using her for his own ends. Mm, I think it's a little ambiguous in this book at least, how much he cares for her and how much he wants to use her which is explored a little bit more later in the series, how he feels like they're kind of two peas in a pod in terms of being so powerful that they're kind of alone and separated from the rest of the world, which are themes that I remember thinking were interesting as being explored later. We love a good hero-villain parallel. We really do. I, I very much enjoy the dark, dark and light parallels between the characters' powers, although I think it would be really fun to read a book where the villain has light powers and the hero has dark powers, but in this case, it was still kind of cool because 
the Darkling and Alina are the most powerful Grisha in the world. So whether or not they like it, they have some kind of connection and understand each other in a way that others can't. And he does use this to his own ends to make her feel like she's special and needs to rely on him. But I think he does have like some feelings for her to an extent, if only because it's lonely at the top and having someone else that has the same amount of power as you can be nice. I think that's kind of where some of the nuance of his character comes in and that he is immensely old and immensely powerful. And also because of that kind of alone, I'm curious to see what he will be like in the TV show and what people's reactions to him, to him will be like, because there is already a, a pretty passionate fan base for the Darkling for the book series, which slightly baffles me because like, I just am the kind of person who finds heroes striving to be good often more interesting than bad guys, even if they're fun and charismatic. I mean, I wouldn't say that I want the Darkling and Alina to get married and have little dark and light wielding babies, but I do find their relationship interesting, if only because it's so incredibly messed up and you do have to kind of go like, okay, but what parts of it were genuine and what parts of it aren't? So like, it's interesting in that way. I don't think he's a good person. He is very much the villain. People who wanted the Darkling to redeem himself, you were weak and cannot cope with the idea of hot villains. You will not survive this world. Um, but I just think he's an interesting character, even if he is pretty unrepentantly a bad guy. He is genuinely convinced that he is doing the best thing for the Grisha. He doesn't want them to become hunted like they were in previous decades. He wants them to be useful and he wants them to have a place in the world. It's just that his methods are like really, really extreme. Definitely. And I think what makes Alina an interesting character later on the series is when she finds herself under the sway of the Darkling or perhaps understanding why he is the way he is because characters that are always 100% of the time good and never face problems and flaws are boring. And what makes her interesting is when she struggles with corruption of power and the way that she is drawn to this man who is terrible, but also parallels her in some ways. But like, I'm just so tired at the idea of like people arguing about whether Alina should end up with Mal or with the Darkling because I experienced it in real time back in like 2014. And whenever I think about it repeating itself again with the Netflix show, I'm just like, do not cite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. I have seen this all play out before. Oh God, yeah. The ship wars of the series were intense because there were the people that passionately wanted Alina to become evil and marry the Darkling and rule the world. And there were people that passionately wanted Alina and Mal to like be happy and escape the Darkling. And there were people that were like, I just think the Darkling is better than Mal. And there were people that were like, I think Mal is worse than the Darkling because he's an oblivious teenage boy. And oh God, the cycles went on and on. I sort of understand where people are coming from when they say they don't like Mal and Alina as a couple but they are nowhere near as bad as the Darkling and Alina. On a different note, earlier you mentioned the Darkling's motivation being partially him spurred on by wanting to protect Grisha, which I think might be a nice segue into talking about the world building and the magic in the series and what held up, what didn't, and perhaps like our general thoughts on the world of Ravka and the Grishaverse in general and what we thought about returning to it. So for instance, I found the magic in this book pretty fun. I like the different categories of magic users. Like we mentioned, there are characters like Olina and the Darkling who can summon magic and light, or who can summon magical light and magical darkness, but there's also characters who can summon water or fire or manipulate the human body, both to harm and to heal. And they're sort of divided into interesting categories. It gets a little bit sciencey at points by talking about summoning fire and needing a spark which is kind of cool. Um, I remember liking that when I was younger and reading that. It's very like traditional magic split up into categories similar to the elements type magic you see in a lot of books. But I remember thinking it was fun and I think the magic itself kind of holds up. I also like the conflict with technology that happens in this trilogy because um, evolving technology in the military is kind of threatening a place of the Grisha. I think that's sort of a cool theme that I remember being really into and is kind of dived more into in the sequels. Mm -hmm. I think it's true that the magic system on this is a little bit has been done before with the different categories. 
I still think it's fun though. I especially like the healers and heart renders who can either harm the body or heal it. They're kind of fun and unique. And I like the names the different groups have, such as people who can control wind are called squallers. And that's, it's a little bit fun. It's a little bit more than just typical elemental magic. Uh, one of the things about the magic system that I like the most is an explanation that a character gives in the prologue where they're explaining how they use magic to heal a human body and they explain that it's just doing the same thing that science does but faster. I thought that was kind of fun because it gives a little bit of a science explanation to the magic. It's not just like ooh they can do this thing but they have to have there's like a cost to the magic and a price and you can't do everything. There's also very different attitudes towards the Grisha in different countries in this world. For instance in Shu Han which is I think kind of supposed to be an analog to China or Mongolia. People are fascinated with trying to figure out how they can do this magic and they're kind of experimented on. In Fierda, which is sort of a Scandinavian country to the north of Ravka, they're feared and killed in witch hunts. And in Ravka, they're elevated members of the military who are often like plucked out of obscurity because their power um, is so important. But their place in society, like I mentioned, is being threatened by developing technology, which is kind of cool. I like the magic and science conflict. One of my least favorite things in fantasy novels is when everyone in the world has the exact same opinion on magic or other invented concepts. Because like, have you met people? We are a diverse group with lots of opinions. So I appreciated that Libra Dugo does a good job of establishing that all these different countries have different opinions on Grisha. They treat them in different ways and that they haven't always been like um, respected. Sometimes they've been feared and hunted. Sometimes they've been experimented on. So that was just kind of fun, I thought. Um, as for the technology, I really like that this is a book that has technology. Like the characters have guns and clockwork. And in the sequel, you get to see a lot of fun sort of like steampunk stuff develop. Because um, I'm a little bit tired of reading fantasy novels that have medieval level technology, I'm much more interested in seeing how magic can interact with more modern things. And I think it's something that I'm, and I enjoy a lot in books when it turns up like this one. Also, the Shadowfold is just such a terrifying concept. There's a map at the front that has an illustration of the Shadowfold with these little Valkra creatures peering out from it. And it really scared me and intrigued me in equal parts as a kid. I think it's one of the reasons I picked up this book because who doesn't love a good fantasy map, especially one that has like creepy little creatures on it. So I really think that the concept of the Shadowfold is cool, even though it is definitely like very traditional, dark is evil, light is good or mostly good kind of thing, which is a little boring in fantasy, but the idea of shadows being a physical place inhabited by monsters is, is quite freaky. And the way that it has these kind of economic and political ramifications for Ravka because they're cut off from trade and the country is internally divided within is kind of cool. We love seeing the impacts of like magic on society. I think Libor Duco has said in interviews that one of her main inspirations for the trilogy actually was the idea of what if like darkness was a place and all the monsters that you were afraid were going to get you as a child live there. So that's definitely part of the inspiration of the series. I do agree that like the dark light divide in fantasy and in media in general is a little bit cliched and it would be fun to read a book where they do something else with that. But the Vulcan are also quite convincingly creepy and unique. So I think it's still kind of fun. In terms of non-magical world building, Ravka is, like we mentioned, inspired by Tsarist Russia, except with magic and kind of the beginnings of industrialization. It's just sort of like set in pseudo-Europe. Um, they don't really travel outside of it. The whole book is set in Ravka, though in later books and other installments in Libardugo's same universe, they kind of travel to other countries, but it's mostly set in Ravka for the part. And Pai has a little bit more opinion on the Russian inspirations for this series, so I'll let her talk about that for a little bit. Yes, I do. I have some thoughts on the world building. I'm not Russian, but I do know some things about Russia, having read other books set there and having done some research on it for stories of my own set there, so I'll throw out my own two cents. Um, so one thing that I've noticed almost immediately when I read this book, even for the first time as a kid, is that Alina's name following the proper Russian naming conventions would actually be Starkova, not Starkov, because 
uh, women's names end in A in Russia. I'm not quite sure why Vibartugo didn't do that in this book. Maybe she just thought Alina Starkova sounded too repetitive. But either way, that's just like a small detail that I noticed, and it does come into play with other characters as well. Later in the books, uh, there's a character called Ilya Morozova, which is a guy's name with a feminine last name, and I'm still not sure what was up with that either. It's just a small detail, but I did notice that. There are also a couple things like Genya's name is a boy's name in Russia, I think, although it is a girl's name in other cultures. So that's not like technically inaccurate, I guess, but it is for Russia, sort of. There's also a couple references to characters drinking a non-alcoholic drink, but referring to it as being alcoholic, which is, I didn't, I didn't notice that the first time I read the book, but I did notice it this time. Oddly enough, that also turns up in the Crown's Game series by Evelyn Skye, which is explicitly historical fantasy. I don't know why authors have some kind of communal research pool where they accidentally wrote down that this book has, that this um, drink has alcoholic content in it or not, but I thought that was a little bit odd. Uh, also, the Grisha. The name Grisha is a Russian nickname. It is basically like if your elite force of magicians was called the Gregs. I am still not entirely sure why they are called this. It sounds cool, but only to American ears. Yeah, I really don't get that. And I think stuff like that makes me think that one, if I was Russian and reading this, I would be a little bit annoyed at these kind of obvious cultural missteps. And obviously Ravka is not actually Russia because Russia historically has no magicians and it has never had a giant swath of magical darkness filled with monsters going down the middle of it. But like there are clear analogs to Russia and like a lot of the names are Russian and they mention things like Banyas or czars. So like there are clear strong Russian inspirations. So then it's sort of weird when you encounter things that are just kind of like inaccurate and it makes me wonder if there was just like a lack of research or obviously people can take liberties with fantasy books because they're not historical but those are all sort of like kind of weird things not to do in your Russian fantasy book. Mm -hmm. Like at a, at a certain point, like I just am confused about these like world building choices. I, I do know that Lee Bardugo has talked about why she chose to write Shadow and Bone as Russian inspired because it is slightly different from traditional kind of just British inspired fantasies. And I think that's one of the reasons it stood out in the young adult fantasy market at the time because there weren't really a lot of like Russian or Slavic inspired fantasy books. And she's talked about how she kind of wanted to talk about um, class divides and industrialization and monarchy. And that's sort of all there in the history of Russia. And I think you can see that in aspects of Shadow and Bone. And I think she's also talked about, I think her family has like Russian heritage. So she probably grew up on some stories of Russia that inspired her. But like, there definitely were things that even as an American reading this, I was like, that just seems kind of weird. Like, I don't know why the Grisha are called the Grisha. It's just weird. I think she explains it in a later Grishaverse book, but the explanation felt vaguely like she had realized it was odd to have a group of magicians whose names were basically a Russian diminutive and had to explain it away for some reason. I, I think Alina's last name is Starkov after House Stark from Game of Thrones, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it doesn't end in an A. Honestly, who knows? I mean, for me, because I am not super familiar with Russian culture and history, I didn't pick up on like any of this the first time I was reading it, and I can still enjoy it because it doesn't bug me that much. But I can imagine if I was someone more familiar with this kind of stuff, it would just like get under my skin and annoy me. I don't know. Yes, I mean, I do think that the class divide between Grisha and regular people kind of works as an analog for Tsarist Russia. I just do wonder why there was like these little slip ups in world building. I'm curious to see what this show will be like in terms of the Russian inspirations because it hasn't dropped at the time we're recording this. There's a lot I'm quite curious about how they'll translate it. We do know that everyone in this show has British accents and not Russian, but that's kind of to be expected because that's just sort of how Hollywood does fantasy adaptations these days. Now we are officially kind of segueing into talking about the show and not the book because I think we've kind of covered everything in regards to our reread that I had in our notes. I'm just kind of curious, like, what are your impressions of the show? What are you looking forward to? For me, I'm very curious to see what the TV show will look like because I remember reading about Shadow and Bone being optioned into a movie like years ago when the trilogy was first coming out thinking that was like super cool 
and then hearing nothing about it for years and just kind of assuming it had slipped away. But then surprise, they're actually making into like a high budget Netflix show that Netflix seems to kind of want to be the next big thing along with shows like The Witcher. So I'm, I'm quite curious how that will turn out. It's also not a straight up adaptation of Shadow and Bone because like we mentioned, the companion series that Bardugo wrote afterwards, Six of Crows was better written and I would say like more popular and kind of like pushed the envelope more in terms of what kind of, in terms of what kind of young adult fantasy books were being published. So they're sort of combining the plots of Six of Crows and Shadow and Bone by showing sort of prequel stories of the characters in Six of Crows and then building up to presumably an adaptation of that if this goes well. So I could see Netflix kind of pumping this series for like up to five seasons if possible. So I think they really wanted to succeed, which I'm hoping they do just as someone who really enjoys Six of Crows. I'm quite excited to see characters from the books like Jesper and Kaz and Inej and probably learn that I've mis been mispronouncing like at least one person's name for many years. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious. I think a lot of the cast are people that I'm not familiar with. So I, I can't really comment on like how well I think they'll do as actors in this show. The actor playing the Darkling, Ben Barnes, is kind of like the only actor that I have any familiarity with or like had previously heard of before he was cast in this, which I think kind of makes sense because the Darkling's like a well-known character and also like the oldest person. I'm also pretty curious about the show. I definitely understand why they would be kind of squishing together Six of Crows and Shadow and Bone, because Six of Crows is, of course, the more popular of the two books and also the better written. It does take place chronologically after the Grisha trilogy, and events of the Grisha trilogy have an impact on the characters in that, but they've also been up to things before that series started. We get a pretty good idea of backstories of characters like Kaz and Jesper. So I think they can definitely come up with something for them to be doing during this time period, which will hopefully be fun and involve some heists and banter and maybe some sad feelings. Uh, so I think that'll be fun. Yeah, as far as I know, Ben Barnes is the only character, uh, is the only person in the cast who's played by like a very famous actor, which I definitely think makes sense because the Darkling is like the oldest person, person in the cast. So it makes sense they would cast a more experienced person as him. Uh, actually, funnily enough, I think one of the only things that I've seen him in was the Dorian Gray adaptation, where he also plays a morally ambiguous character that, like, at one point is, like, immortal and is considering faking his own death and pretending to be his son, I believe. So, like, that's kind of funny coincidence. Um, I'm curious about the casting. I think it's interesting that the actress playing Alina is half Chinese because Alina's white in the books, but hopefully that's, like, some well-added diversity with, like, Chinese American writers behind that. So I think that could be nice to like diversify the cast a bit. I think it's cool that they're making Alina Shu in the TV show because Shu Han is one of the countries that we've seen like the least of in general in the Grishaverse. So I think it could be cool if that's an opportunity to lean more into world building we didn't see in the books. But like, I don't know, I'm white. I'm not really going to be like giving all my thoughts on this, but I think it's cool that they're giving like an actress of color, a lead role in a big budget show. And that makes me hope that like, it does well for her career. I think they've also cast actors of color as other characters who are presumed white in the book, which I think is nice because like, it's a fantasy world. People don't have to be white. And even if you're pretending it's historical Europe, which like also wasn't white. So, so not white. Anyway, it just, my pet peeve is when people are like, uh, there can't be people of color in this fantasy book because it's not historically accurate because first of all, there's magic. And second of all, like, Historically, Europe wasn't all white. So I'm kind of glad that they're changing that for the show. Obviously, like, it's not out yet. I don't really know what the writing of that is like, but I think it's good. And I hope that that launches some actors into some strong careers. Though I also really hope that, like, they start adapting more books by authors of color, because I think Young Adult Fantasy is doing a great job of publishing some cool sounding books by authors of color um, inspired by non-Western cultures. And I would be super pumped to see some of those get onto the screen, like Children of Blood and Bone. I think several of the background characters have also been cast as people of color. I think Zoya is, I believe, assumed white in the Grisha trilogy, but then it's revealed to be half Suli later in the series. So she's not white. And then I think um, Nadia, who's another girl that Alina meets training as a Grisha, is played by a Black actress. I think there was a couple other people. I don't remember all of them, but that was 
nice when the casting announcements were coming out to see that they had kind of done something to make up the fact that the, basically the whole cast in the first book is white. I think in terms of the TV show, what I'm most excited to see on screen is the magic because looks like it's going to be like hopefully a, a large budget show Netflix is trying to push. So I hope their special effects for magic is cool and I would like to see that get dug into on the show. I think it'd be fun to see on screen. Also, I, I'm excited to see kind of like the court decadence because there is quite a lot of Alina going from poor wharf and serving in the army to in this world of like luxury and decadence among the upper classes that I think would be fun to see on screen. So I'm excited for those parts. I hope they turn out well. Um, I, I enjoy seeing, you know, fancy balls and cool magical stunts on screen. So if the show fills that void for me, I will be pretty satisfied. Ooh, yes. Czarist Russia was obviously, you know, Czarist Russia, but it sure was decadent and cool to look at. And they definitely seem to be aiming for some of that vibe in the show. Alina's magic from what we've seen also looks pretty cool. And I think it would translate really, it's a very visible power, obviously. So it would translate great on screen. I'm also, you know, I'm excited for the Darkling because he's a very charismatic character. And I'm hoping that Ben Barnes will be able to pull off an equally charismatic performance. Very excited to get to hear lines like, fine, making me your villain in live action after reading them so many times as a kid. I think I'm just excited to see Alina on the screen. I like Alina's character and I think she goes to some really interesting places over the course of the series. Um, I'm not familiar with any of the work by Jessie Maylie, who is playing Alina, but I have faith that she's a good actress and I'm just like excited to see Alina's character on the screen. So I think that'll be kind of fun. It, it was definitely interesting rereading this book, knowing that I'm about to see all of it on the screen because I was like, ooh, this is fun because I can kind of like picture it in my mind, but like soon I'll see what other people's interpretation of this is like. So, you know, I think the book has flaws, but I think the TV show could have the potential to be pretty interesting. We don't yet really know how they're going to be tying the Six of Crows plotline into it, but I think it could also be fun. It might be sort of like sort of a high budget fanfic, what were the crows doing at this time period in Radko's history, but I think it could also be really cool. And as a also huge fan of the Six of Crows series, I'm desperately excited to get to see Kaz, Jasper, and Inej on the big screen. I'm so excited to see Inej. I love her. She's like, honestly, one of my favorite fictional characters and has been for a while. We love a good girl with knives. I do love Alina as well. I hope that the show doesn't lose her like strong sarcastic sense of humor which is one of the things that I enjoyed the most about her or like the fact that she goes through some legitimate struggles about being the chosen one not being like an easy job to have and I think those are two of my favorite things what favorite things about the character and I hope they keep them so Lulu do you have anything else to say about Shadow and Bone and the upcoming tv show yeah actually I mean we've said earlier that we are excited for the tv show because I'm really curious to see how they're going to translate Shadow and Bone into a big budget Netflix adaptation. There are some things regarding the show I'm a little wary about, mostly regarding casting of characters from Six of Crows. For instance, Kaz, who is from Six of Crows, but will be appearing in the first season of the TV show, is a disabled character. He uses a cane and deals with chronic pain due to a broken bone being set wrong when he was younger. And his experiences are inspired by Lee Bardugo's own disability, but the actor playing him isn't disabled as far as I'm aware. This is kind of not great because it plays into a larger trend in Hollywood regarding roles for disabled actors being taken by actors who aren't disabled and therefore robbing the people who should actually have those roles of a job. People have kind of similarly raised some concerns regarding the casting of characters like Nina and Jesper. So I'm sure those actors will all do a great job, but I do think there's something to be said for acknowledging how their casting can play into existing bad patterns. Yeah, that's kind of unfortunate. I guess we'll see how the show handles it. Also, uh, while it's pretty cool that the creators behind Shadow and Bone are trying to diversify the cast and have an Asian lead, Alina is originally white in the books and they're also written by a white author. So I thought I would toss out a few really good books by Asian fantasy authors that I've enjoyed recently, just so you can check those out and support some diverse voices. One is Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie C. Dow, which is a dark retelling of Snow White told from the point of view of the evil queen. It's a lot of fun if you enjoy books that have morally ambiguous protagonists and twisty politics and descents into villainy. I would definitely recommend it. 
Another is A Thousand Beginnings and Endings, which is an anthology of sci-fi and fantasy short stories by Asian authors, edited by Ellen O. Oh. There's a lot of cool stories. They have a lot of variety. I would definitely recommend it. The Epic Crush of Jeannie Lowe is a really funny urban fantasy novel about a teenage girl from the Bay Area who gets dragged into some drama with Chinese mythology while also studying for the SATs. It's kind of like Percy Jackson. I laughed the whole time I was reading it. It's a ton of fun. Um, as well as that, there are some adult fantasy novels that I've enjoyed a lot lately. The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang is quite a dark book. So like, take that into mind if you want to read it. But it's a retelling of 20th century Chinese history following a or an orphan girl who becomes a soldier and later a conduit for a god. It's super dark, but also amazingly well-written. It's also been optioned to be a TV show, so hopefully we'll get to see it on the big screen someday. Jade City by Fonda Lee is another fantasy novel following a family of gangsters in a made-up city inspired by Asia. It's also been optioned for TV, so hopefully we'll get to see that one as well. I loved the cutthroat politics and the family dynamics in that one, and I'm very excited for the conclusion of the series coming out later this year. So if you want to read some books by Asian fantasy authors and support them, then I would definitely recommend those books. Yeah, I haven't read all those books, but the ones that I have read, I would definitely recommend. The Poppy War and Jade City have also both been optioned for TV, and I think they would look great on the screen. So that's something I would be excited to see further develop. Like I said, I have some hesitations regarding the TV show, and the source material itself isn't perfect either, but I do have a lot of fondness in my heart for the Grisha verse books, and I'm definitely curious how the TV show will turn out. I just think it's not something I think I'm going to be totally uncritical of, even if it does end up being mostly positive. Yeah, although I have a great deal of fondness and nostalgia for Shadow and Bone, and I think it's still a fun book. It's not perfect. The TV show probably won't be perfect either, but I'm still excited to see it drop at the end of April, and I guess we'll see how it turns out. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners, Lulu? Well, honestly, if there's one thing you should take away from this episode, it's that I, Lulu, would lay down my life for Jenya Safin. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, follow us on Twitter at nevertwinscast, send us questions at neverthetwinsshallmeet.tumblr.com, or shoot us an email at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com. Also, a big shout out to my friend Halal for transcribing our first episode.